Uh, John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars and the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had been come from through the servants who had drawn the water new. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Just turn that down. Okay, I think we're, we're on now. I think good morning, everyone. I think you're looking at me here, so I'll look over at you. Picture this with me. It's Christmas. It's a world without COVID, which sounds great. So you've invited as many people to Christmas dinner as you want. Your house is packed. You've been thinking about this and planning for this meal for weeks. Guests arrive. They sit down at the table, set with your best china, and out from the kitchen comes a hungry man TV dinner, one for each person. You carefully pull back the plastic wrap, you let that steam come out, you let that aroma waft up, and you bite into those grainy mashed potatoes. Now, you might love yourself a hungry man dinner, that's fine, but I think we can all agree this is a disaster. Everyone's going to remember this Christmas, but not for the right reasons. Our story today takes place in this little town of Cana. It's, it's north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up, probably eight miles or so. And the reason why Mary and Jesus and his disciples are there is because there's a wedding there. And the thing you need to know about weddings is that weddings in ancient Israel are a huge deal. The wedding feast could go up to a week. There would be speeches. There'd be um, a public parade. There'd be music. There'd be dancing, food, wine. And the more people present at the wedding, the more honor would be brought to the family. There's one thing you did not want to happen at that wedding, and that was for the wine and the food to run out. Now, I think this takes a little bit of work on our part to, to understand. First of all, we don't, we don't live in an honor culture. I don't think we understand just the gravity of what that would be to a family back then. But secondly, if you, if you go to a wedding in our culture and there's no meal, or maybe there's just light drinks and refreshments and food, or, or say the food does run out at the wedding. You know what you do? You, you stop by Burger King on the way home, or you make a sandwich when you get home. It's not a big deal. If you go to a wedding today and you run out of wine, if you grew up like I did, you're just still stunned that there was wine at the wedding in the first place. So not a big deal if you run out of wine. But to run out of food or wine at an ancient Jewish wedding feast, that would have been a disaster. It would have brought shame on the groom's family. They were in charge of making sure that everyone there had enough to eat and drink, and it could damage their family's reputation for years. We celebrate in our culture, but not like this. And I think I, I have some, I think, sense of, 
of what this must have been like because of living in Benin in West Africa where Abel's from. Like first century Israel, celebrations were a huge deal. They could go on for days, maybe even a week. And like in ancient Israel, people would spend massive amounts of resources on these feasts. It wouldn't be surprising for someone to spend up to a year or more's wages on just one party. And if you invited someone in Benin to a feast, they would have probably spent weeks looking forward to that. They would have said, on va bien manger, one is going to eat well. And eating well means eating meat, probably lots of meat. And we, again, we don't, we don't get that. We eat meat sometimes two, three times a day. Meat in Benin was a big deal. Often, if you didn't have enough money, you couldn't afford to eat it very often. And so, for example, when my family visited me in Benin, I threw a party for them. I had outfits made for each of us. I invited my coworkers and my neighbors. And uh, I went to the capital city and bought a goat because I knew if I had thrown that party and everyone showed up to a vegetarian meal, that would have been a disaster. Mary recognizes that the wedding feast is on the brink of disaster. We don't know exactly why Mary knows this. Perhaps it's because she was involved in food preparation. But Mary recognizes there's a serious problem here. She's trying to avert a disaster, a disaster that would have brought shame on the groom's family. So she goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. So it's not exactly clear what what Mary means by that, what she thinks Jesus is going to do. But we do know in this series that we've been going through on Mary that that she's heard some pretty amazing things about Jesus from Simeon and Anna, from the, the shepherds, from the angel Gabriel. We saw last week in Greg's sermon, we have a very precocious 12-year-old. It's been 20 years. We don't know that Mary has seen much of anything since then. Probably no miracles. So it's not clear. What does Mary think Jesus is going to do here? But Mary thinks if if someone can do something, it's Jesus. Maybe you have someone like that in your life. Uh, The car won't start. Uh, The pipes are frozen at your house. The, The crust on your pie is a disaster. It's Christmas Day and the turkey is still frozen. And you think, I know someone who can fix this. If I'm in the kitchen and something goes wrong, I sometimes think to myself, like, I bet my mom knows what to do here. And Jesus seems to be one of those people. If anyone can fix a problem, it's Jesus. Notice here, the, notice here the faith that Mary has in her son. At the end of the story, we're going we're gonna to read after the turning of water to wine, the disciples are going to have faith. But notice that Mary has faith now. She has faith in Jesus before the miracle. Jesus responds, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, again, we've got to do some work here. Because I don't know about you, but if I would have addressed my mom like this as a child, that would not have been okay. The Greek here, it's neither impolite nor nor rude. Actually, in John's gospel, we'll see Jesus refer and address numerous women with this. uh, If you were in the Bible study class today, the story of the woman, uh, the Samaritan at the well, he calls her woman. Mary Magdalene at the resurrection, Jesus calls her woman. Uh, Again, at the cross, where we'll see Mary and Jesus together next, he refers to her as woman. So rather than impolite or cold, this, is, this actually, in John's gospel, has some warmth and respect for women in it. Women, why, woman, why do you involve me? So more literally in Greek, Jesus is saying, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? And this is an idiom in Greek, and it, it Could have meant a couple different things, but but Jesus is probably trying to say, this doesn't concern me. 
like, what does this problem of the wine running out have to do with you and me? This is not my business. Let's think about this. Why would Jesus be reluctant to involve himself in this problem of the wine running out? Because he says, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, in John's gospel, hour refers to the moment of Jesus' glorification, which is his death and resurrection. So when you hear hour, you need to think cross. You need to think crucifixion. Notice how, how Mary and Jesus are seeing this problem of the wine running out differently. Edward Sree points out that, that when Jesus says to Mary, what is this to me and to you? It's as if he's saying, what is the wine to me and to you? What's the wine to me and to you? Because the wine means something different to Mary than it does Jesus. What's, what's the wine mean to Mary? For Mary, the wine running out means potential shame for the groom's family. They would have failed their cultural expectation to provide hospitality, and this would have been a disaster. The wine for Mary running out is empathetic care for others. Right? She's, she has her eyes open, she sees a problem, and she moves in, trusting that Jesus can somehow meet those needs. That's the wine to, to Mary, but what's the wine to Jesus? The wine to Jesus is something totally different. The wine to Jesus is a clock. It's a countdown. See, Jesus knows if he performs this miracle, he starts a countdown. It's like, it's like I remember as a kid lighting a fireworks the fuse. Once you lit that, the thing was going. There was no stopping it. Jesus knows that, that if he performs this miracle, if he turns the water to wine, this will launch his public ministry and the countdown starts. Where does that countdown end? At the hour, the death, the cross. You see how differently Jesus and Mary are seeing the problem of the wine running out? So now, now the question becomes, how's Mary going to respond? The ball's back in Mary's court. She got this started by bringing the, the situation to Jesus' awareness, and now he has raised the stakes. So I don't know if you've you ever gone to a friend or a spouse, and you, you think you're going to talk about one thing, and all of a sudden that is ramped up like 10 times to a level you had no idea it was going. Mary has gone to Jesus with a request, a serious request, but all of a sudden Jesus has ramped this up like 100 times. And the, the text is not totally clear. Does Mary understand what Jesus is saying when he says the hour? We're not sure. But, but remember, and this should help us because we're in this series on Mary. Mary's got these cryptic words swirling around her head. This old man had come to Mary and said, one day a sword is coming for your son and it's coming for you. Like when someone speaks those kinds of words to you, you don't tend to forget them. Mary went to Jesus to ask about a problem related to wine. And now Jesus says to her, this is about way more than wine. If I do this miracle, the clock starts ticking. The fuse gets lit. And at the end of that countdown, at the end of that fuse is my death. That's what the wine means for me. What do you do in this situation? I don't know about you, but as a parent of children, I'm like, let's scratch that request. Don't worry about the wine. You know what? Come to think about it, these people are going to be just fine. Let's just go back to Nazareth. What does Mary say? I love this line. I think this is my favorite line in the text. Mary looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. So Mary could have said any number of things right here. She could have said, you know, Jesus, can, can we fix this problem of the wine and then like talk about this hour thing later? 
Mary could have said, like, on second thought, let's just, let's just drop this. I'm not ready for this countdown to start. In other words, Mary could have focused on her own needs and desires in this situation, but she doesn't do that. And we've seen this pattern again and again with Mary. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. In other words, she puts her trust in Jesus. Okay, I have my own ideas about how this should happen, what should and shouldn't happen, but I'm going to trust he knows best. Do whatever he says. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can bring this a little closer to home for, for a minute. I want, I want to ask you a question. What does God want from you? More than anything else, what does God want from you? Okay, think about that. Does God want you to be kind? Does God want you to be nice? Or, or does God want more than anything that you are at church on Sunday or you're watching on, on YouTube right now? Is that what God wants more than anything for you? Does God want you to avoid sin? Oftentimes I think we have, while all this might be is true, I think we have this image of God as kind of peering down from heaven. He's got his grade book and he's, he's making notes on kind of where we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And we think if I can walk the line, God will be happy. Okay, that's what God wants from me. Is that what God wants from us more than anything else? If, you, if you're in our midway reading, Bible reading group, you would have read this earlier this week, the story of Adam and Eve. I think this is a perfect story to illustrate this point. This is a fascinating story because this isn't just a story about Adam and Eve. This is a story about us. Adam and Eve are a stand-in for all of us. Their sin is our sin. And what is that sin? What's at the heart of Adam and Eve's disobedience? They didn't trust God. God had told them, you can, you can eat from any tree. There's, this garden is, is paradise. It's full of trees. It's got more fruit than you could possibly imagine. You can eat from whatever tree. You just can't eat from this tree. I've given you everything you need to flourish. And how does the serpent, serpent tempt them? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You're not going to die. Rather than die, you're going to find something even better. In other words, the serpent plants the question, the doubt that has haunted us ever since. Can you really trust God? What God wants from us more than anything is to trust him, to trust that he has our best interest in mind, to trust that he knows what he's doing even when it's not clear to us. That's what faith is. So often we think, of, we think about faith as being... Uh, Beliefs, what we think, faith is so much more about trust. Trusting in God is way harder than believing in God. Trusting is scary. Trusting is saying, I have my ideas about how this situation will play out, but I'm going to recognize that my vision is limited, and so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to lean in and put the weight of myself on you and trust you're going to hold me up. And that's exactly what Mary does here. Do whatever he tells you. Son, I've got ideas of how this should play out. These words about the hour make me nervous, but I realize that there's way more at stake here than I first thought. And so I'm going to trust you here. I'm going to, I'm going to surrender to you. Do whatever he tells you. Okay, we're kind of balancing back and forth. Ball's back in, in, uh, in Jesus' court. What is Jesus going to do? He turns the water to wine. Okay, he, he does what Mary asks him to do, what seems to be asking him to do. But he does something so much more than turn uh, water to wine to meet the basic need. Okay, each of these, in the miracle, each of these stone jars we read about, there's six. They probably would have each held about 30 gallons. 
So do the math and you've got 180 gallons of wine. You've got something like 700 bottles of wine. This is so much more than what Mary asked for. Mary went to Jesus to try to stave off the social shame that would come to the groom's family had they run out of wine, okay? Mary's hoping, like, can we get enough wine to get us through this last day or these last two days uh, and, and, and avoid the shame? Now they got 700 bottles of wine. Like, this feast can go on for weeks now. And, and don't think like 700 bottles of Franzia. Think like 700 bottles of the best Bordeaux wine. What I, think I, what I think we sometimes miss here is that Mary triggers this miracle. You know, as Scott McKnight points out, in trusting Jesus, Mary unlocks the doors to a mighty miracle. Mary has the right answer. And Mary plays a central role in the first miracle of her son, Jesus. Don't downplay Mary's role in this miracle. Don't see this as a scene either of like where Jesus is like, all right, I just get my mom off my back. I'm going to do this miracle. No, here's what I imagine. I imagine after, after Mary responds, Jesus smiling and thinking, good answer. You want wine? Wait to see what's coming. I'm not just going to make enough of mediocre wine to get us to this feast. I'm going to make the best wine, and I'm going to make copious amounts of the best wine so that this feast can go on and on. In this scene, I want you to see Jesus as one who comes bearing extravagant gifts. Now think about this for a second. Is your image of Jesus one who comes bearing extravagant gifts, or is Jesus frugal in your image? And I ask that because we all do this. We all tend to create and project an image of Jesus that looks a lot like us. And I mean that literally, and that Jesus in our minds literally looks like us. He, he's white and he has blue eyes. But Jesus, what do you know, tends to like the things we like and dislike the things we like and like the people we like and dislike the people we like. And, and guess what? Jesus has kind of our personality too and our habits. So let's think about this for a second. And we all do this. Let's think about this for a second as, as Anabaptists. One of the things we tend to stress is simplicity, is frugality. We don't like wasting things. Like, we're a little nervous about extravagance. Like, whether it be the decorations in our church, whether it be our food, whether it be our art, extravagance makes us nervous. We like to keep things simple. One of the most central and sacred texts we have is called More With Less, a guide to eating while consuming less of the world's resources. And let me just say, I affirm all these things. If anything, I don't think we live simply enough for what our planet can sustain. And compared to almost all the world's population, we do not live simply. But I affirm it. Our confession of faith tells us that we are to live simple lives. But our confession of faith tells us that our tradition of simple living is not rooted in frugality for its own sake, but in dependence on God and God's gracious gifts to us so that we can be generous with others. That's a, that's a whole sermon itself right there. But, but, but here's what I want you to see. This is not a picture of Jesus who's a penny-pinching frugal Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus who comes with extravagant and abundant gifts. Do you, do you have an image of Jesus who, 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 who shows up with soup and bread and more with less? Good. I love soup and bread. 
We see that Jesus, he, he lived a pretty simple life, right? Didn't, didn't have a lot of stuff. Fasted in the desert for 40 days. But do you have an image of Jesus in your mind also who must have enjoyed feasting so much that he was accused of being a glutton? Do you, do you have an image of a Jesus who on his cookbook shelf, he's got more with less to do kind of the daily cooking, but you better believe he's got an Italian cookbook on his shelf. Because when it's time to cook for the wedding, no offense, but I'm not looking to more with less. I want to go Italian for the wedding. Do you, do you have an image of Jesus that when he shows up at the carrion meal, when we hopefully we'll have one again, he will bring 700 bottles of Bordeaux wine? Is that your Jesus? Because you need that Jesus. You need that image of a Jesus that doesn't just meet our basic needs, but, but comes to us with such abundance, such extravagance, that it's beyond imagining. A generous Jesus who asked, when asked, doesn't tell his mom, wouldn't it be cheaper if they drank water, like, like I tell my kids when we eat out? But rather, he comes with 700 bottles of wine, the best wine. See, this is important, not because this is about wine. It's not ultimately about wine. You need this image of Jesus because at the end of the passage, John says this is the first of the signs. And what's a sign? Think about what a sign is. If I'm driving up and I see a sign that says Columbiana, that is not Columbiana. That sign is not Columbiana. That sign points beyond itself to Columbiana. It points me to it. John does not think the most important thing in this story is for you to think that Jesus just loved, loved wine. Okay? He, there was copious amounts of good wine. We shouldn't neglect that. But, but Jesus is saying the wine is a sign. It's pointing to something beyond itself. It's pointing to something bigger than itself. What is it pointing to? Well, look at, here, this is so interesting. Look at the bridegroom in the story. Okay, whether he realizes or not, that groom is on the edge of total humiliation and shame. Okay, the wine's about to run out. As we talked about, this would have brought huge amounts of shame. The wine runs out. He brings dishonor and shame to him and his family. Jesus steps in, and what happens to the bridegroom's status? Okay, Jesus could have, he could have produced enough wine just to kind of get through and stave off the disaster. I think that's what Mary's asking. Like, don't, don't let this guy be humiliated. Don't let his family be humiliated. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus' work behind the scenes not only eliminates the man's shame, it bestows honor on him. The master of the banquet says to him, like, I can't believe this. Like, nobody does this. I've never seen this. Everybody brings out the good wine and then the cheap wine. But you, you come out with the best wine last. Nobody does this. What did the groomsman do to deserve this honor? He did nothing. He doesn't even really understand what's happening. He, 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 the groom has walked to the edge of disaster, and he's walked back with a medal around his neck. Jesus did this for one man, but remember, it's a sign. It's pointing to something beyond itself. It's pointing to the next time that Jesus will see his mother, to, and they will be together in John's gospel at the cross. And what will happen at the cross? Wine will again be poured out, but this time the wine will be Jesus' blood. And there's power in that wine. There's power in that blood. So much so that it has the power to reverse, reverse the fortunes of all who put their trust in Jesus. The wine comes to us like the groom, and it takes whatever dishonor or shame we have, and it replaces it with extravagant honor. Jesus is the bearer of extravagant gifts. Do you have that image of Jesus in your mind? 
Do you have an image of Jesus who comes to you in maybe your shame and your dishonor, and he comes to you, and not only does he take that away, but he bestows upon you extravagant honor. You need an image of an extravagant Jesus. You have come to Jesus at the brink of disaster, whether you know it or not. The wine is gone. Shame is coming. And you have walked away with more than you could have ever imagined. Do you believe it? Do you trust, like Mary does, that Jesus has the ability to take a hopeless situation and make it right? Do you believe that Jesus comes to us like he did at the groom and not only takes away our dishonor and shame, but replaces it with extravagant honor. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God who comes bearing extravagant gifts, gifts beyond our imagining, gifts that move us from a place of shame and dishonor to a place of honor because of those gifts. Help us to believe. Help us not just to believe in our heads, but to trust you, trust who you are, trust that that's your nature, that that is who you are, at the wedding feast, but even more so at the cross when the wine was poured out for us. In Jesus' name, amen.